Just as you're finding that, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we, uh, as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Lord, we have just sung of how you're exalted. And Lord, we pray that tonight we would see you in all of your glory. Lord, we come tonight uh, bringing all of our needs, bringing all of our sins, and we come to the only person in all the universe who can help us. And so, Lord, we ask this evening that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, and that you would help us to trust you. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, In the 1980s, before I was born, uh, the UK was rocked by a beef scandal known as the mad cow disease. I've always thought that's a great title for a disease, the mad cow disease. It basically emerged that some cows had been fed bone meal that contained uh, a virus called BSE. And in total, 166 people in the UK died. So even though it has a bit of a funny name, uh, it wasn't a laughing matter. 166 people in the UK died from eating the meat from those cows who had been infected with the disease. Uh, It's a matter of life and death, what you feed on, what you put into your body. And it's also a matter of life and death, what a church feeds on and what a church receives. Uh, Proper diet is crucial for the life of a healthy church. And that's what Paul is referring to in our passage this, this evening in verse 11. Can you see it? Verse 11, he refers to sound doctrine. Or literally, that phrase can be translated healthy teaching or health-giving teaching. A few weeks ago, Christoph introduced us to this little letter, and we saw Paul urging Timothy to stay in Ephesus and to silence false teachers who had been disrupting the church. You can see that in verse 3. And we know from the last time that these false teachers, they were obsessed with vain speculations about genealogies and that kind of thing, that distracted people from the gospel, verse 4. And this false teaching that was distracting people from the gospel, it wasn't just a harmless pastime. It was a fatal disease in the life of this church in Ephesus. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1, verse 20, we read of two tragic victims of this disease, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, you get a sense of what it was We thought a little bit about it last time, but you get a sense of what these false teachers have been teaching and where they've gone wrong in verses 8 to 10 of our passage. Let me read that to you. Paul writes, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Paul's point in verses 8 to 10 is this. The law is not there for indulging in speculation about ancestry that gets everybody arguing with each other. The law exists to expose sin. Uh, It's there to expose the sin of the world and to show everyone uh, our need of a savior. Uh, The law wasn't given by God to us to show us how to live a righteous life, but instead to show us that we can't live a righteous life and to show us our need of someone to rescue us. 
It's a bit like when you go to the hospital uh, and they take your bloods or whenever you get an x-ray done. Uh, the blood test or the scan isn't going to make you well. It's not going to fix you. It's not designed to do that. But what it will do is it'll expose something in your blood or in your body that's not right so that you can get the help that you need. And Paul's point is that the law can't do anything for us other than expose our inability to live a righteous life and to show us our need of a savior. And Paul says the law, it's good when you use it for that purpose. It's good when you use it that, for that purpose, but it's not for distracting the church from the gospel. And it seems like in Ephesus, as Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, the false teachers had just got carried away with these elaborate speculations about ancestry. And it was causing trouble, but worse than that, it was causing people to take their eyes off the gospel and try and seek the righteous life through the law rather than by faith. And what is the result? Well, the result is that some people in Ephesus have lost grip of the truth and their faith has been shipwrecked. So throughout chapter one of this book, um, Paul contrasts his message and his ministry with that of the false teachers uh, in Ephesus. Paul's gospel is completely different to the petty version that's being offered by these misguided teachers in Ephesus. But more than that, Paul's ministry was also driven by his experience of the abundant grace of God, which was nothing like the ministry of these false teachers, who we learn in chapter 6 of the book, are driven by a desire to gain a following, but also for financial gain. I wonder, did you notice how Paul described his gospel, the gospel that you and I live by in verse 11? Look at what he says. He says that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Uh, he doesn't just say it's the gospel of God, which he does say elsewhere in the New Testament a lot. Here he goes a wee bit further, and he says it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And I think what he's trying to say is this, the true gospel, my gospel, is nothing like what these guys are talking about, because the true gospel reveals the glory of God. That is the weight of God's character. In the true gospel, you see how beautiful God is because of what he's done for us in Christ. And he says to Timothy, that's why you've got to silence these guys, because they're talking nonsense and they're distracting people from the truth and from the greatness, the glory of God that is revealed in the gospel. That's the context of what's going on in this church in Ephesus. And Paul has two things to say uh, to Timothy. And the first thing, if you're taking headings tonight, verses 12 to 18, Paul says to Timothy, hold on to the glorious gospel. Hold on to the glorious gospel. Uh, all of this emphasis on truth, as you read the letter, truth, 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 it comes up again and again. But all this emphasis on truth, it can lead to another problem, can't it? And that is the danger of raising up people who are theologically orthodox but relationally obnoxious. People who are passionate about the truth, but are not exactly known for the kind of love, verse 5, that Paul speaks of. And so the question facing us over the next couple of weeks as we read this little letter that's all about the truth is how do you get the balance right? How do you get the balance right between holding on to the truth, but doing so in a way that's Christ-like and authentic and gracious? How do you do that? 
Well, I think the answer comes in these verses, verses 12 to 17. And it all flows from how we view ourselves and how we think about God. Listen to how Paul talks about God and talks about himself. Verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Uh, in verse 13, Paul recounts how, as a zealous Jew, uh, he had shamefully persecuted God's people, the church. He describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Uh, sometimes we can get so used, can't we, to, to reading Paul in the New Testament that we forget what a nasty piece of work he was. Uh, think back to Acts chapter 7, uh, the stoning of Stephen. What a gruesome thing that was as they stoned this innocent man. And there's Paul standing at the back, watching, smirking, approving. But Paul says he received mercy and grace, verse 13 and 14. And Paul was so astonished by God's mercy and God's grace to him uh, that he is just overcome with a sense of God's goodness. Uh, God's mercy is when God withholds the punishment that we deserve, death and hell. And God's grace is when he gives us the very thing we don't deserve, the righteousness of Christ. And you know, you and I will never be as grateful for the mercy and the grace of God as Paul was unless we truly believe that our sins are terrible and deserving of punishment. It's impossible to feel entitled and to bask in the mercy of God. It is impossible to experience mercy while holding on to pride. There's a passage in the gospel that illustrates this point really well. Luke chapter 7. You probably know it. You'll know it as I, I tell the story. Uh, Jesus is invited to lunch at Simon the Pharisee's house. And this notorious sex worker crashes the party because she wants to show her devotion, her love of Jesus. And there she is, and she's weeping, and she's wetting her, his feet, and she's used her savings for perfume because she just wants to express how much she loves Jesus. And Jesus turns to his, his dinner host and he says, Simon, do you want to know why she kisses me and you just sit there looking at me? Do you want to know why you want to have a conversation that's interesting, but she is throwing herself at my feet? Do you want to know why you're interested in me, open to me, but she absolutely loves me? And he says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The bigger you know your debt to be, the greater you know the value of what God has done for you in Jesus. But the problem is, all of our problem is, we face uh, uh, the idea of feeling entitled. It comes so much more easily to us than this idea of poverty of spirit. Uh, sin causes us to look in the mirror and to have a kind of inflated sense of our own goodness. 
so that we don't fear God as we should and we don't feel the need to be forgiven. We think, why would I need to be forgiven? I'm fine just as I am. Uh, Human self-reflection, it's a bit like those big mirrors uh, in the gym where everyone goes when they're working out and look at themselves and marvel at how beautiful and impressive they are. I don't do that. Um, But that's what sin in our hearts does. It causes us to look at ourselves, to look in the mirror, and to think, what is God's problem? I'm not in any trouble. I'm fine just the way I am. But when the woman, but when like the woman in, in Luke 7, you realize that actually, yes, you are. You are in trouble. And you're not as good as you think. With all the privileges that we've had, with all the blessings we've enjoyed, the way we've treated God, the way we've treated other people, we're in serious trouble, but thankfully, there is a Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he reflects on this, he's just astonished. As he looks in the mirror and he looks at how he lived his life, how he treated God, how he treated God's people, and he thinks, my goodness, God's mercy and grace is just amazing. Uh, Many of you will know the name of a guy called uh, Spurgeon. He was a a Baptist preacher. He was called the Prince of Preachers. But you'll probably not know the name uh, Frank Borum. Uh, Frank Borum was the last student who ever went through uh, Spurgeon's Bible College. Uh, he's an amazing man. He writes these little short stories, which are brilliant. But he went and uh, he became a minister uh, in Australia. And there's a lovely story that Borum writes where he's down uh, at the docks at Hobart and he's talking to this young sailor. And he sat down beside the man and he said to him, have you come to the point of giving your life to Christ yet? And the sailor kind of thought about it. And he said, well, Reverend Borum, you see all those big boats out there and there are all these ships in the dock? He said, if you took all my sins and you piled them up on those boats out there, there wouldn't be enough space for my sins, for the things that I have done. And Borum sat, reflected, and then he said to the guy, he said, young man, you see that ocean out there? If you sank all those boats with all your sins, they would completely disappear. And he said, the mercy of Jesus Christ is like an ocean. We sing, don't we? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But I wonder, do we believe it? Do we believe how glorious the gospel of God is, that God could save someone like Paul? Paul then goes on, verse 15, to make one of the most famous statements in all of Scripture, look, with, uh, look at verse 15, please. Uh, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. When Paul says, I am the worst, uh, he's not uh, just being sentimental, it's not exaggerating. Uh, he really does believe this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He says, I was the worst, or I am the worst. But it's also interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say, I was the worst. I was a really bad guy, but now I'm great. He says, I am the worst. He speaks in the present tense. Why does he do that? Well, he does that because although he has been amazingly transformed by God, he will always be the man who persecuted Christians. Just think about that. The early church was only so big. So the reality is Paul probably knew Uh, someone whose wife or whose husband or whose son or daughter he had put in prison or he had killed. Can you imagine the scenario where Paul bumps in to Stephen's widow and her three kids? 
How does Paul deal with that? How does he live with himself? How does he deal with his conscience? And then you read Romans, and you read that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul really believed that. And wouldn't this, verse 15, wouldn't this be a great verse for you and I to grow in our personal appreciation of? Because as our awareness of our sin increases, so does our appreciation of the cross. As we become more aware of our moral bankruptcy, we become more aware of the riches of God's grace. Do you know, when the Holy Spirit is really working deeply in someone's life, they begin to see their sin in HD. They can't look at it. But they also begin to see how precious the blood of Jesus is that washes away all sin. Wouldn't this be a great verse to grow in our own appreciation of, as Paul did? Perhaps tonight, though, you're here and you have no sense of your sin before God. Well, if that's you, I need to warn you that you are further away from the kingdom of God uh, than you might want to imagine. But if you do know yourself to be a sinner, well, can you, like Paul, say that Jesus Christ came into the world to save me? Uh, recently, I was introduced to a guy called Brownlow North. Brownlow North was a preacher and an evangelist uh, during the 1859 revival here in, uh, in Ulster. But in his life, he had lived a really terrible uh, life. He was completely steeped in all kinds of sin. One evening, Brownlow North was invited to preach to this crowd during the revival. And uh, whenever he was getting ready to, to, to preach, someone came up to him with a little letter and they said, can you read this please? Someone has given it, it's very important. And he thought the letter was simply asking for prayer. And so before he went to preach, uh, he took the letter, he read it. But what it contained was details, intimate details about all of the sins that he had committed in his former life. And the letter concluded with these words. The letter said, How dare you, being conscious of the truth of all above, pray and speak to the people this evening when you are such a vile sinner? I wonder what you'd do in that scenario. Well, Brownlow North put the letter in his pocket. And when it came time for him to preach, he pulled out the letter and he read it to the packed congregation. And this is what he said. He said, what is here said is true, and it is a correct picture of the degraded sinner that once I once was. But oh, how wonderful must the grace be that could quicken and raise me up from such a death in trespass and sin and make me what I appear before you tonight, a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning of the Lamb of God. Isn't that a beautiful story? And I tell you to make the point that it's only those who are constantly aware of their sin, of their need for the cross of Jesus and their deep debt to him who can truly preach the gospel and who can do so with integrity. How can you preach of what you don't know? How can you speak of what you've never experienced? Verse 16 is another incredible uh, statement from Paul. Uh, he writes, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Isn't that an amazing statement as well? God saved Paul to do two things, to display his infinite patience, but also to make Paul a living, breathing, walking example 
that nobody is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. Sometimes we can think, I'm too rubbish, I've made too many mistakes, I'm too messed up for God to want anything to do with me. And yet Paul says, look at me. I am proof that this gospel, my gospel, is for everyone. Whatever you've done and whatever you're like. And perhaps that's something that you need to hear uh, tonight. Because the grace of Christ will overflow into the life of the worst sinner if only we will receive it by faith. Uh, Timothy, along with the church in Ephesus, and you and I also, are to hold on to this glorious gospel. It's no wonder, isn't it, that in verse 17, Paul just explodes. Verse 17 doesn't add to his argument, but look at what he does. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just loses it in praise, and he breaks out because he realizes the gospel is glorious, and therefore we should hold on to it. But then finally, we see Paul circle back to where he started in verse 18 and 19. Let me read those to you. He writes, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, In the ESV, uh, that little uh, verse 18, it's translated, wage the good warfare, and we have it as fight the battle well. If you're taking headings, our second heading this evening, verses 18 and 19 is this, fight the good fight, fight the good fight. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. Uh, I was reflecting this week, there there is a way, isn't there, that a parent can speak to a child that is quite unique. Uh, My parents speak to me like nobody else speaks to me. Uh, Why do they get away with it? They get away with it because they're my parents. Uh, They regularly tell me to cut the grass, to work hard, and to drive slowly whenever their granddaughter's in the car. Uh, It's a unique form of communication. I would describe it as lovingly direct. Uh, And these letters that Paul writes to Timothy are a bit like that. They're lovingly direct. But you know, the relationship that Paul has with Timothy, uh, it is a rare one, but it is a precious one. Uh, All through his epistles, his relationship with Timothy is described like the relationship between a father and a son. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 uh, says, you know how as a son to a father, he, Timothy, has served me. 1 Corinthians 4.17, I have sent to you, Timothy, my son whom I love. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, our passage tonight, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul's writing this letter to his trusted young friend in a passionate in a blunt way, like a father would speak to a son. Uh, He speaks to him like he's family. And what does he tell him to do? Well, verse 18, he tells him to fight. He tells him to fight. Paul longed that the church in Ephesus would keep hold of the the glorious gospel, the truth. But if that's going to happen, Timothy is going to need to fight for it. Uh, For Timothy, fighting the good fight will be about his public ministry, what he does among people, but also about his personal piety, his personal walk with the Lord. He needs to pay attention to both those things, what he does in public, but also what he does in private. First, his public ministry, verse 18. Uh, When Paul says, I give you this charge, uh, he's referring to verse 3 
of chapter 1, when he had previously told Timothy to command these false teachers not to teach false doctrines. And so Timothy's public ministry is to be one of silencing error and of teaching the truth. But Paul knows that that's not going to be easy. He knows that it's going to be a battle. Uh, Timothy isn't going to fight for the, the sake of fighting. Elsewhere in the letter, Paul tells people not to fight and quarrel. So he's not just saying fight for the sake of it. He's saying fight because we have to protect the glorious gospel that we've been entrusted with. There is a good fight that Timothy is to engage in. And Timothy's temptation would be to give up, to pack it in. But if he's tempted to do that, Paul reminds him about who got him into this in the first place. It wasn't uh, his minister. It wasn't Paul himself. It wasn't even Timothy's own idea. God had got Timothy into this work. God had called him to this. Uh, it seems from verse 18 that when Timothy was ordained, uh, prophetic words were spoken that confirmed that this was God's will for him. And so Paul reminds him of his calling in order to encourage him to fight and to fight publicly. It seems that Paul himself drew a lot of strength from his own sense of calling in verse uh, 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who gave me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul believes that God appointed him, and he wants Timothy to know that God has also appointed him. And as Paul thinks about the ministry that God has given him, his heart overflows with thank thankfulness at the thought that God would choose him to serve him. And therefore, like Paul, Timothy shouldn't approach this calling, this charge, this ministry in a reluctant or a resentful kind of way. But instead, like Paul, he should thank God for the privilege of service. Perhaps that's a word that we also need to hear this evening for some of us in the ministries that we have been given, in the things that God has called you to do, whether here in church in any number of ways, or in our homes, or in our workplaces. Uh, maybe we're inclined to avoid the struggle, the battle, and we grumble about the costs involved in sticking our neck out and living for Jesus. But let's remember that the God who saved us by his extraordinary grace has appointed us and has wonderfully empowered and equipped us to fight the good fight. So fighting the good fight, it's not just about our our public ministry, that is one aspect, but it's also about our personal piety, our personal walk. Paul tells Timothy, verse 18, or sorry, verse 19, uh, to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Verse 19, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which, with, uh, which some have rejected and so suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Uh, as Timothy seeks to guard the, the, the gospel in the church, he's also got to guard himself. Because fighting the good fight also involves being vigilant about our own personal walk. There's no point in serving God in any kind of ministry without uh, attending to our own hearts and our own lives. Uh, I think that word there that Paul uses, faith, it's not so much talking about the faith, but about an act of trust in God. He's telling Timothy, keep relying on God. Don't slip into thinking that you can do this work in your own strength. You can't. Keep faith keep trusting, keep relying on God. And in that other phrase, good conscience, 
which speaks of being careful to walk in obedience to God. Uh, This seems to be the issue with Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, They had been shipwrecked, not fundamentally because of an issue of doctrinal purity, but of moral purity. Their consciences had been affected. So Paul hands them over to the discipline of the church. Uh, John Stott really helpfully writes on this passage. He says this, if we disregard the voice of conscience, allowing sin to remain unconfessed and unforsaken, our faith will not long survive. And so, as we finish uh, tonight, I hope that you can take away uh, two things uh, from this evening. The first, hold on to the glorious gospel. The gospel is glorious, and we should fight to guard it from those who would change it or distort it or distract us from it. But I also hope that you'll take away how deeply personal the gospel is. It's not simply to be believed, it's also to be experienced. What we read here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is essentially the Apostle Paul's testimony. He's telling his story. Can I encourage you tonight that as you go out into a new week, in a culture that we live in, where stories are more compelling than concepts, and where personal authenticity is more persuasive than assertions of truth, our testimony, your testimony, your story of how God has transformed your life is worth sharing. In a place like Bangor, while we might be thought of as rude if we have a debate or we try and argue for Christianity, we have every right to tell our story. And if, like the Apostle Paul, you know the Lord and you've experienced the glorious gospel for yourself, then what a story it is that you have to tell. We're to hold on to the glorious gospel and we're to fight the good fight. We're to do it in public and we're to do it in private. So let's tell people this week of how good God has been to us. Let's pray as we finish. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Lord God, we praise you this evening that you have poured out abundant grace and mercy upon us. Even though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you, Lord, not only that you have withheld punishment from us, but that you have lavished grace upon us and you have appointed us to serve you in all walks and spheres of life. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go out into a new week, you would help us to fight the good fight, to hold on to the glorious gospel, and to do so with love and with thankfulness to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.